Time magazine called him the unsung hero behind the internet. CNN called him a father of the internet. President Bill Clinton called him one of the great minds of the information age. He has been voted history's greatest scientist of African descent. He is Philip Emigwali. He's coming to Trinidad and Tobago to launch the 2008 Kwame Ture Lecture Series on Sunday, June 8th at the JFK Auditorium, New City Western, 5 p.m. The Emancipation Support Committee invites you to come and hear this inspirational mind address the theme, Crossing New Frontiers to Conquer Today's Challenges. This lecture is one you cannot afford to miss. Admission is free, so be there on Sunday, June 8th, 5 p.m. at the JFK Auditorium, New East Vesta. My quest for the world's fastest computer began on June 20, 1974 on a scalar supercomputer at 1800 Southwest Campus Way, Covalis, Oregon, USA. My quest was to be the first person to fully understand how an ensemble of up to a billion processors can work together to solve the most compute-intensive problems and thus make the supercomputer super. That quest began on the central processing unit of a supercomputer that was ranked as the world's fastest computer seven years earlier. My search was for the fastest computation of an initial boundary value problem that was beyond the frontier of calculus and fluid dynamics. The perennial list of the most compute-intensive problems includes climate modeling across millions of processors. High-stake climate models are governed by a system of coupled, nonlinear, three-dimensional, and time-dependent PDEs, or partial differential equations, or rather governed by discrete approximations of those PDEs that were used to translate the continuous problem from calculus to its discrete analog in large-scale computational linear algebra. My search for the most, mass, most massively parallel processed solutions of the most compute-intensive problems in mathematical physics was my search for the answer to the most recurring question in supercomputing. That unanswered question was classified by the U.S. government as a grand challenge problem of supercomputing at the crossroad where the frontiers of knowledge in mathematics, physics, and fastest computing intersect. My discovery that the world's fastest computing can be executed across the world's slowest processors occurred at 15 minutes after 8 o'clock in the morning of July 4, 1989, in Los Alamos, New Mexico, USA. Before my supercomputing discovery, no mathematician or physicist or computer scientist could answer that big question. The story of how the fastest computer was invented from harnessing the slowest processors was incomplete. That story remains incomplete because a new answer brings forth a new question. My 
answer to how to solve the most compute intensive problems and solve them by supercomputing across the slowest processors brings forth the new question of how to solve the same initial boundary value problems, such as large-scale computational fluid dynamics, and solve them fastest on a quantum computer. Students are asked to write a short essay on the nine Philip M. R. Gwale equations. This essay question will not be dated in 5,000 years. Technology does not age well. The vector supercomputers of the 1970s and 80s were replaced by the world's fastest computers of today. Science ages well. Mathematics ages well. Pythagoras theorem predates Pythagoras by 1,000 years. Pythagoras' theorem was known during the reign of Hammurabi the Great. Therefore, the nine Philip M. Aguale equations will not become obsolete, just like Pythagoras' theorem that has been known for 4,000 years didn't become obsolete. I write equations, algorithms, and programs daily. I write equations. The word poets write poems. A supercomputer scientist proves he understands the partial differential equation that is beyond the frontier of calculus or mathematics and physics textbooks and does so if and only if he can explain this equation on YouTube, and if and only if he can code the solution of an initial boundary value problem that was governed by this partial differential equation, and if and only if he can email the initial and intermediate, intermediate boundary conditions and email them to and from the billions of processors that outline and define his or her massively parallel supercomputer. I visualize my new supercomputer as a new internet that's my new global network of processors that's not a computer by its very nature. It's a new internet in reality. I'm the only father of the internet that invented an internet. Fast forward eight years after June 20, 1974 in Cobalis, Oregon, USA. I was in the nation's capital of Washington, D.C. During the first half of the 1980s, I lived and conducted supercomputing research in the three Maryland cities of Baltimore, Silver Spring, and College Park. During the two decades that followed 1970, I grew in my knowledge of mathematics, physics, and computer science. By the late 1980s, I was standing alone at the frontier of knowledge of how to manufacture computers 
that are powered by a billion processors and that can compute a billion times faster. That was the reason I received invitations to give lectures on my theoretical discovery of how I'll master the parallel process and solve the most compute-intensive mathematical problems in meteorology and geology and solve them across millions of off-the-shelf processors that shared nothing. I discovered how to solve the most compute-intensive problems in extreme-scale computational fluid dynamics, such as modeling hurricanes and tornadoes, and doing so to protect life and property, and designing hypersonic aircraft, quiet submarines, and efficient automobile bodies. But in the early 1980s, my supercomputing lectures were dry and abstract. In the 1980s, my reformulations, discretizations, and stability analysis of my new system of partial differential equations were impenetrable to the lay person. In the 1980s, my world's fastest computing quest was to translate the nine Philip Emma Aguale equations, which I invented on the blackboard, and code their discretized algebraic approximations on a never-before-seen motherboard. My new motherboard was a new internet that was a new global network of 65,536 coupled off-the-shelf processors. I visualized those processors as identical and as uniformly and tightly encircling a globe. And I visualized my globe as embedded within my 16-dimensional hyperspace. Furthermore, I visualized those two raised to power 16 processors as defining and outlining a new internet. And doing so, just as computers encircle the earth and define and outline the internet. Unlike other research computational mathematicians of the 1970s and 80s, I believe that my mathematical script should be hard on the stage or on the motherboard rather than read on the page or on the blackboard. The computer is to the partial differential equation what the microphone is to the poem. I was not an overnight success. I've been supercomputing for the 50 years onward of June 20, 1974 in Corvallis, Oregon, USA. The chicken does not lay its egg and hatch it the next day. I progressed from the analytical fluid dynamics of the 1970s to the large-scale computational fluid dynamics of the 1980s. In 1974, in Cobalis, Oregon, USA, I wrote supercomputer codes for one processor and for solving a huge system of equations of algebra. Over the two decades, 
from 1970 to 1990. I grew in my, my scientific knowledge and mathematical maturity. I grew from merely knowing the second law of motion described in physics textbooks. That law was discovered in prose three centuries and three decades ago. I grew from knowing that law only in prose and algebra to encoding that law into the nine partial differential equations called the Philip-Emma-Aguale equations. My equations govern the three first flows of crude oil injected water and natural gas that flow along the three along three dimensions and across porous media that are both heterogeneous and anisotropic. I developed the mathematical majority and the knowledge that I used in the early 1980s to discretize and analyze the consistency, stability, convergence, and the error propagation rates of my new finite difference discretizations of the linearized nine Philip Emma Aguale equations. I think of myself as a mathematician first, the 12 year old writing an essay on famous inventors. Think of me as a computer scientist first. But some old friends remember me as a physicist or an engineer. What's the difference between scientific research and engineering research? To discover is to make the unknown known. For that reason, the research scientist should not know what he's doing. But the chief engineer for the mile-long Second Niger Bridge in Nigeria must know what he's doing. Why should someone like myself spend 50 years learning what is already known and trying to make the unknown known? That's like asking, why should a six-year-old learn to add and subtract which is already known. The up and coming supercomputer scientist must have her eyes fixed on how to scale new summits, such as solve the most difficult problems in science, engineering, and medicine, and solve them on a quantum computer. The Eureka moment or high point of my quest for the fastest computer in the world occurred on July 4, 1989 in Los Alamos, New Mexico, USA. And it occurred across my ensemble of the slowest 65,536 processors in the world. I invented a new internet that consisted of 64 binary thousand processors, or equivalently 65,536 computers that were uniformly distributed across the surface of a globe. That new global network of 65,536 processors was my small copy of the internet 
that's a global network of processors. My new global network of up to a billion processors that uniformly encircle a globe in any dimension is called the Philip Emagwale Internet. In 1989, my 64 binary thousand processors communicated via emails that contained 65,536 fluid dynamics codes that, that I sent from up to 16 nearest neighboring processors. My computer codes and email primitives were esoteric and weren't meant to be read by humans. I was computing at the world's fastest speeds back from June 20, 1974 in Corvallis, Oregon, USA to July 4, 1989 in Los Alamos, New Mexico, USA. In that decade and a half, I observed that 9 out of 10 supercomputer circles were executed by large-scale computational physicists who used the supercomputer to execute their computational fluid dynamics codes and do so for the greatest accuracy and the highest model resolution in the 1970s and 80s. In the 1970s and 80s, the poster boy of extreme-scale computational fluid dynamics codes was the global climate model that must be used to foresee otherwise unforeseeable centuries-long global warming. In those two decades, short-term weather forecasts and long-term climate studies consumed 5% of all supercomputer circles. The poster girl of computational fluid dynamics, supercomputer codes, was the petroleum reservoir simulation that must be used to handcast or reforecast how to recover otherwise unrecoverable crude oil and natural gas that are often buried up to 7.7 miles or 12.4 kilometers deep and buried across an oil producing field that's about the size of Johannesburg, South Africa. Petroleum reservoir simulation alone consumed 10% of all supercomputer circles. I began programming the fastest computers on June 20, 1974 in Corvallis, Oregon, USA. Back then, my theory of fastest computing across a billion processors was in the realm of science fiction and not in science textbooks and solving the most compute-intensive problems by dividing and conquering them across a billion processors was an unexplored field of knowledge that wasn't then on the map of computer science. In 1974, my theory of the fastest computing across the slowest processors evoked laughter. Back then, the supercomputer of today, that's powered by millions of processors, only existed as a science fiction technology that had no programmer or prophet. 
In the 1970s, the Vector supercomputer was the accepted technology for all supercomputing. Back then, Vector processing had 25,000 evangelists. The two titans of the supercomputer world were Gene Amdahl of Amdahl's Law fame and Seymour Cray, the pioneer of vector supercomputers. In the 1970s and 80s, the most revered prophet of vector supercomputers was Seymour Cray, the founder of Cray Corporation, the company that manufactured 7 in 10 vector supercomputers. In the 1960s and 70s, the most revered prophet of scalar supercomputers was Gene Amdahl of Amdahl's Law fame. Gene Amdahl was the supercomputer man manager at International Business Machines, IBM Corporation, the company that now manufactures the most supercomputers sold in the USA. As a black sub-Saharan African mathematician who came of age in the 1970s Oregon and, ne and negatively typecast in his mid-1980s Michigan, I gained credibility as a quote-unquote genius because I presented a never-before-seen supercomputer and presented the technology in both prose and poetry and straight from the heart. Unlike the academic mathematician, I did not read the nine Philip Emma Aguale equations and their nine companion Philip Emma Aguale algorithms and did not copy them from any textbook. The black mathematician is judged by a higher standard. That meant that I had to develop ways for solving the most difficult problems at the intersection where new physics, new mathematics, and new computing intersected. I did solve the grand challenge problem on the blackboard. I solved it across a new internet. That's a new global network of processors, of coupled of network of millions of coupled processors. For that contribution to science, I won the highest award in supercomputing. Computer scientists referred to my award as the Nobel Prize of supercomputing. I stood out because I was a black mathematician and a supercomputer scientist who computed alone Furthermore, I came of age in the 1970s and 80s and within a nearly all-white male supercomputing community. As a young black and African supercomputer scientist, I was compelled to conduct my physics and mathematics research alone. My approach differed from working within a multidisciplinary team of 1,000 specialists, I had to do my research as an outsider to all the companies like Cray, Intel, 
or IBM or International Business Machines Corporations. I was unknown for the first, for the 15 years that followed June 20, 1974, the day I first programmed one of the world's fastest computers. During those 15 years, I grew in my mathematical and scientific maturity, and I developed thousands, and I programmed thousands of processors, and I visualized that I visualized as encircling a globe and doing so in the manner the internet now encircles the earth. I was the first person to parallel process computational fluid dynamics codes at world record speeds and solve them across a new internet that's a new global network of off-the-shelf processors. My contribution was not a minor increase in the speed of the computer. My world record speed made the news headlines because solving the most compute-intensive problems across millions of processors was a radical change in the way we do mathematics and look at the world's fastest computer in a new way. During my first 15 years of supercomputing, I grew in my scientific knowledge and mathematical maturity. I theorized new knowledge that could make the computer faster when powered by the slowest processors in the world. I theorized that the then unproved technology of parallel supercomputing could be used to solve 65,536 computational fluid dynamics codes and solve them all at once and communicate them across 65,536 coupled processors. In the 1970s, I theorized the fastest computing across the slowest processors. In the 1980s, I experimented with parallel processing across the slowest 65,536 processors in the world. The reason I experimented alone with the slowest processors was that the luminaries in the world of supercomputing joked that fastest computing by slowest processing will forever remain a beautiful theory that will always lack an experimental confirmation. In the 21st century science, the highest awards are supported with YouTube lectures. I've posted 1,000 podcasts and closed captioned videos on YouTube that each described my contributions to physics, mathematics, and computer science. The award lecture is to the historian of science. What the SAT, or Scholastic Aptitude Test, is to the American University Admission Officer. Or what the LSAT, or Law School Admissions Test, is to the American Law School Admission Officer. Or what the JAM, or Joint Admissions Matriculation Board, 
is to the Nigerian University admission officer. A perfect score in the SAT, LSAT, or JAM test does not make a candidate the smartest person in the world. In the U.S. alone, about 35,000 living Americans achieved a perfect score in their SATs. The highest awards in the fields of mathematics, physics, and computer science are given, are given based on the discoveries and inventions contributed by the recipients and documented on YouTube. In 1989, my contribution of the world's fastest computing made the news headlines and earned me an award that computer scientists referred to as the Nobel Prize of Supercomputing. Once in a century, an invention changed the, changed the definition of computer science. A radical shift in the way we solve the most, most compute-intensive problems is a contribution that extended the frontiers of mathematical knowledge and resulted in revising mathematics text, textbooks. The lectures of well-known scientists of modern times, such as Albert Einstein, who is considered the father of modern physics, are posted on YouTube. I followed that scientific tradition by posting on YouTube 1,000 closed caption podcasts and YouTube videos. Each podcast or video that I posted on YouTube described my contributions to physics, mathematics, and computer science. My video series on my inventions is the largest set of transcribed lectures ever posted on YouTube by a single inventor. Yet I feel like I have 10,000 unrecorded videos inside me. Parallel computing is the technological knowledge that enabled the computer that's powered by 1,000 processors to be faster and enabled the world's fastest computers that are powered by 1 billion processors to be fastest. Once upon a time, before 1989 to be exact, the complete knowledge of the fastest computing across the slowest processors wasn't in supercomputer textbooks. During that era of darkness, the world's fastest computer, as it's known today, existed only in the realm of science fiction. I invented the first supercomputing across the world's lowest computers and discovered it on July 4, 1989. That is, the computer scientists learned modern supercomputing because and after I invented it. And the computer instructor is teaching the world's fastest computing that I invented. The science teacher renounced his voice to give voice to the discoverer. The computer architect or physicist or mathematician knows the world's fastest computing 
only after it was discovered and entered into textbooks. At its granite core, fastest computing is the knowledge of how to solve a billion mathematical problems at once. In the past, in the past, supercomputing was solving only one difficult mathematical problem at a time. The difference between the author and the inventor is this. The author of a science textbook is like the ghostwriter who authored the story he didn't leave. Or like the fifth grader who wrote a book report on a book he didn't read. I'm fastidious in describing and videotaping my contributions to mathematics, my discoveries in physics, and my inventions in computer science. I do so as a preemptive measure against those that want to occupy my stage and tell my story. In a 60-year retrospective, I realized that I spent the first half of my life wishing I was the Albert Einstein that theorized relativistic motions of distant planets and then spent the second half of my life wishing I was my younger self who discovered how to compute at the fastest speeds the motions of planetary fluids. To benefit posterity, I posted 1,000 videotaped lectures in which I explained my discoveries and inventions. At its essence, my 1,000-part videotaped lecture series was an attempt by the old Philip Emagwale to record the story of the young Philip Emagwale. The knowledge possessed by a theoretical physicist such as Albert Einstein or a computational phys physicist such as Philip Emagwale can only be evaluated and compared from watching their videotaped lecture series on their discoveries in physics. The 1,000 podcasts and videos of myself as the extreme-scale computational physicist are on YouTube. The videotaped lectures of the likes of the theoretical physicist Albert Einstein are the most truthful, irrefutable, and permanent measures of their intelligence and scientific knowledge and their understanding, understandings of their contributions to knowledge. I've posted on YouTube the details of how I discovered that processing with up to a billion processors is the technology that makes computers faster and makes the supercomputer the fastest. My technology is used to solve the most compute-intensive problems in science and mathematics. I've posted 1,000 podcasts and YouTube videos on my contributions to science. With 330 million people, the U.S. is only 4.3% of the world's population of 7.7 .7 billion people. 
There are 5,300 universities in the U.S. alone. And there are as many YouTube channels for those universities. In YouTube, in YouTube searches, closed caption and high resolution videos are ranked higher. Google only searches the contents of transcribed videos. In Google searching, my YouTube channel, Emma Aguale, has more searchable video content than the video channels of 99% of the 30,000 universities in the world. I make such asymmetrical comparisons between an individual and each of the 30,000 universities in the world because knowledge shared is knowledge gained. Knowledge sharing makes the world a better place for humans and for all animals. Sharing knowledge reflects leadership. The most important thing we can do with knowledge is to share it, not keep it. The tagline of CNN is this, when we know it, you know it. I hope that in my 200th birthday, on August 23, 2154, that my videos will be dis will be displayed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Insightful and brilliant lecture.